Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo. Today, episode 34, titled Ask Not Who Wrote Ask Not, in which we explore John F. Kennedy's inaugural address. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. And if I remember correctly, last episode I mentioned that I've been making up a lot of songs for Xander. Yeah, one of them was really pretty. It was about, I, I so fucking love you. What was it? It was, holy fucking shit, I love this boy. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, I have, uh, I have a new one that I made up, and I'm just going to sing you a little bit of it. It goes... You're my chicken cacciatore, you're my veal piccata, you're my osso buco, my ricotta salada, and I love you. So you're saying that your your son, your heir, your progeny, is uh, to you an Italian meal. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. I'm not sure why Italian food, I guess maybe because I'm half Italian-American, but let's uh, get on with the show, shall we? Um Mikey, I have to ask, what uh, what have we to uh, to uh, discuss today? That's pretty good. That's not a bad uh, Kennedy accent. You know the the important thing about the Kennedys, and you, you can't uh, overplay it, but uh, you must include it is the is the uh, the stutter, which is uh, I think a, de- a defining uh, vocal uh, tick. So uh, today's episode is about Kennedy's inaugural. We're a little bit late, but. What got me really interested in this was, well, a couple things. One, we did an episode last year about Lincoln's Gettysburg Address after I visited the Lincoln Memorial with some family when they were here in town in Washington, D.C., seeing the Gettysburg Address literally etched in stone on the side of the Lincoln Memorial really moved me and really inspired me to look very closely at that speech. I was similarly inspired recently when it was the 50th anniversary of Kennedy's assassination, I went back and read his inaugural address. I wrote a piece about it for Slate, and I wanted to talk to Richard Tofel, who wrote a book about the inaugural address. It's called Sounding the Trumpet. He spoke with Ted Sorensen at length before Ted Sorensen died. Ted Sorensen was Kennedy's chief speechwriter for much of his senatorial career and his short presidency. And I wanted to know who wrote this inaugural, because these words, they were inspirational to me when I was a kid. I don't know if they meant anything to you. You were just a child when he was assassinated. I wasn't born yet. It's funny you should mention that, Mike, because I'm going to turn to my left. One second. I'm back. I have dug out 
from some file of memorabilia a copy of My Weekly Reader from December 1963. It was the first issue after the president was assassinated, and it was a special memorial section of My Weekly Reader with uh, JFK's picture on it and, you know, the haunting information of born May 20, 1917, died November 22nd, 1963, and in it was nothing other than his inaugural address. And in the back page, there's some biographical information of uh, the president, uh, one picture of him from prep school, where he looks a lot like, um, actually, Jerry Mathers is Leave it to Beaver. and Choate, right? Another he went in- to Choate, I believe. Uh, well, yeah, although there's a D on his sweater, so I'm confused why that is. But there's a photo of him as a young naval officer and campaigning for the the Senate and one with him shaking hands with Charles de Gaulle. On the margin of this is in number two pencil in the block letters uh, written by me when I was eight years old, Kennedy was great. And I got to tell you, the penmanship, not bad. <laughs> One of these days, Bob, I'm going to come over and force you to show me what else is in that memorabilia box. All right. uh, Enough about you and me. Let's bring in Richard Tofel. He's the president of ProPublica. More relevant for this conversation, though, he's the author of Sounding the Trumpet, The Making of John F. Kennedy's Inaugural Address. Hey, Dick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hello, Dick. Hello, Bob. We can't really talk about Kennedy's inaugural without talking about a man named Ted Sorensen, who was very likely the chief author of much, if not most, of the speech. Who was Sorensen, and how did he come to be this sole person on the planet, it seems, that could write for Kennedy? Sorensen was a young lawyer from Nebraska. He had gone to work for Kennedy very shortly after Kennedy's election to the Senate and had traveled with him extensively all over the country in the late 50s as Kennedy prepared to run for president and then did. And he had simply developed an incredible and unmatched effort to find and channel Kennedy's voice. And he was the person Kennedy was most comfortable with. And then, frankly, Sorensen was quite jealous of other people and made sure that he remained the one person that Kennedy was comfortable with in terms of his writing. Let's talk a little bit now about the general substance of the inaugural address. And something that really hadn't occurred to me until I read your book and I started researching the speech is that the address runs some 1,300 plus words, and almost every single one of them is about foreign policy. Why? I think there are a number of reasons. The most important of which is that Kennedy thought, I think particularly after the campaign of 1960, that that was what really mattered. It was what had divided him and Nixon, he thought, importantly. I think in retrospect, we think that they differed more on domestic issues, but they both thought, I think, that they differed on what we would come to regard as inconsequential distinctions on foreign policy. He also thought that the foreign policy job of the president, remember this is the height of the Cold War, was the most consequential. And in a way that looks extraordinarily naive from this distance, I think he thought that the domestic issues of the time had been largely resolved or on their way to resolution. Now, hold on right there. There wasn't the fundamental domestic issue of the day, or at least the gathering domestic issue of the day, segregation, civil rights, which certainly had not been litigated, but on the other hand was quite polarizing. 
was it not a factor that Kennedy did not want to use his his opening salvo to polarize the the very split electorate that brought him to office? But it wasn't polarizing between Kennedy and Nixon. There was almost no difference between the candidates in 1960 on civil rights. And, indeed, Kennedy has to be browbeat by his own staff into adding a three-word reference to civil rights to the speech. At one point, he talks about human rights. Of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed and to which we are committed today at home and around the world. And his two civil rights aides say to him, couldn't we add at the end of that, at home and around the world? And finally, at the last minute, he agrees. And that is the only reference to civil rights in the entire speech. Let's talk about some more specific passages then from the speech. One that comes across as, I think, arrogant, really, if you read it closely. Let every nation know whether it wishes us well or ill that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. And this, I think, is the heart of the controversy about John Kennedy ever since. And I would say you can argue this round or flat. Round would be, this is the immediate pretext and precursor for the tragedy of Vietnam. Flat would be, this is the best statement ever made by an American president of what becomes, let's say, 15 years later, the first American global commitment since Wilson to a policy of human rights. And depending on which way you see it, I think, is which way you see Kennedy and his legacy. What strikes me also about this passage is that it has more fingerprints of the president himself in terms of authorship than most of the other, whatever, 1,200 words in the speech. This seems to have been perhaps Kennedy's own original phrasing, no? Yes. The one part of the speech that we have the strongest evidence that Kennedy wrote himself is a dictation he gave to his secretary, Evelyn Lincoln, aboard a plane about 10 days before the inaugural. And this language seems to appear for the first time in that dictation. Okay, well, let's hold that thought because uh, the subject uh, is destined to uh, surface again. All right, well, here's another passage. This one, I think we are absolutely certain that Kennedy did not write. If a free society cannot help the many who are poor... It cannot save the few who are rich. I went through this speech paragraph by paragraph with Ted Sorensen writing my book, and I read him each line or paragraph from the speech and said to him, tell me about that. And when I read him that, he said, that's a pretty good line with a certain amount of pride. (laughs) And I said, yes, it's from Adlai Stevenson, from whom they had solicited a complete draft. And he said, really? And I said, yes. He said, well, it's still a pretty good line. Now, here again, here again, we're going to talk about the various contributors to the ideas and the actual language in the speech. But if there is any kind of um, linguistic pattern set in Kennedy's inaugural, we've now discussed two passages so far, and the other one has friend and foe. 
wishes us well or ill. This has poor versus rich. Eventually, we, of course, will be talking about what we should ask for and what we should not ask for. Contrast seems to be a kind of uh, a rhetorical motif that the president and his collaborators were much enamored of. Contrast is a big part of it. Brevity, I think, is a big part of it. Meter is a big part of it. Sorensen talked about lines like friend or foe, wishes us well or ill, as having been derivative of doggerel that he enjoyed writing when he was a teenager. And a lot, almost all of the sentences of the inaugural are short. And they were extremely conscious from the very beginning. Kennedy, before they began the speech, asked Sorensen to count the words in all the previous inaugurals and to keep this one among the very shortest. And correct me if I'm wrong, Dick, but by this time, the time that the inaugural was written, which was January 1961... Sorensen, and possibly Kennedy as well, I don't know, had already become very enamored of a book called The Elements of Style, which we now shorthand as Strunk and White. At the time, it was just Strunk who had written the book. Later on, E.B. White, of course, lent his part to it. Uh, The Elements of Style is a book that talks a lot about economy of language, not overusing certain parts of speech, and using language judiciously. I think it's a very important point, Mike. Indeed, White's resurrection of Strunk takes place in a New Yorker magazine piece in 1957. The Elements of Style is reissued for the first time in many years in 1959. Sorensen was a huge fan of it, and he got his copy, as he recalled it to me, from Joe Kraft, a newspaper columnist, who interestingly contributed a draft of this speech that's been lost. So there may well be some of these phrases that are actually crafts as well. All right, let's take a short break for a word from our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of audio information and entertainment on the internet. You can choose from more than 150,000 audiobooks. Audible has, of course, a special offer for Lexicon Valley listeners. If you sign up for a 30-day trial membership, you'll get one free audiobook of your choice. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon Hey, Bob, what book from Audible am I going to recommend today? Does it involve JFK? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Is there a pop-up book of the Zapruder film? (laughs) No, it's the Warren Commission report. Oh, yeah, that's a (laughs) page-turner. It's 1,500 pages, but it it reads like it's 1,800 pages. No, it's so fascinating to go back and read these things because they read like real-time journalistic first drafts of history. Johnson created the Warren Commission just a week after Kennedy was assassinated, and not even a year later, this report came out. It has an introduction by Michael Beschloss. It's 34 and a half hours that you could get for free if you sign up for a 30-day trial membership at Audible. And your membership will also include a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest, Go to audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. Okay, well, let's get back to the text of the speech. Another very famous passage is... We dare not tempt them with weakness, for only when our arms are sufficient beyond doubt can we be certain beyond doubt that they will never be employed. That is essentially the, the most succinct 
articulation of the doctrine of mutually assured destruction that I, that I could ever imagine. I think it is that, Bob. It is also the shortest summation of what John Kennedy thought he had learned from the Second World War and his basic understanding that his own father had been wrong about the Second World War in its origins, that Winston Churchill had been right. And it was his riff on one of his favorite quotes, which was from Churchill, who said, we arm to parley. In fact, Kennedy, for his graduation thesis at Harvard, it, I think this was later published as a book, argued that the infamous appeasement of the Nazis at Munich was not a function of cowardice, but of the of England's failure to rearm swiftly enough after World War One. Precisely right. And and the phrasing here, by the way, we dare not tempt them from weak with weakness, is another phrase lifted straight out of the Adlai Stevenson draft, which is particularly ironic given that the Kennedys considered Stevenson to be soft. That brings us to what is maybe the second most famous passage from the speech. Again, one that we know for sure that Kennedy did not write. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. And this is from a draft submitted by John Kenneth Galbraith, a noted Harvard economist and friend of Kennedy's, later his ambassador to India. In a wonderful little moment, Galbraith was caught on film, I believe by a French documentary film crew, telling a friend that this was the highlight of the speech. Which was the only moment... <laughs> the ever self-effacing John Kenneth Galbraith. Exactly. This is the only moment during Kennedy's lifetime where he talked about the authorship of the speech and was enormously angry at Galbraith for having clearly given this hint of his own authorship of part of the speech. Bob mentions the ever self-effacing Galbraith. Galbraith submitted to Kennedy an unsolicited draft of his own before Kennedy and Sorensen actually solicited drafts from Stevenson and Kraft, as you mentioned, and others. Galbraith gave Kennedy, I think it was, what, 10, 15, 20 pages that he had written without ever being prompted. Galbraith shows up in Florida looking for a job, but comes with his own draft of the inaugural address. And Galbraith, interestingly, and this is part of Kennedy's genius and Galbraith's limitation, Galbraith did not understand how television had changed rhetoric. Galbraith said that it did not matter how speeches were heard. It mattered only how they read. So his draft had all sorts of long and incredibly complicated passages. Kennedy's speech is, I think, so successful because it is one of the first American speeches written principally to be received by television. All this will not be finished in the first 100 days, nor will it be finished in the first 1,000 days, nor in the life of this administration, nor even perhaps in our lifetime on this planet. But let us begin. So this is one of my favorite little byways. This also comes from the Galbraith draft, although Sorensen punched it up a bit. And the phrase, a thousand days, of course, has come to be very closely associated with the Kennedy administration. Kennedy only lived a little bit over a thousand days after his inaugural. And it was the title of Arthur Schlesinger's book about the Kennedy administration. Well, it turns out that Arthur Schlesinger, who was Galbraith's best friend, had contributed to the Galbraith draft of the Kennedy speech. 
I talked to both Professor Galbraith and Professor Schlesinger about this, and my own conclusion, with which neither of them disagreed, is that the thousand days actually comes from Arthur Schlesinger. And so he is planting the seeds of the title of his own best-selling book five years in advance. All right, a drum roll, please. Because if, as Mike said, let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate is the second most famous line from Kennedy's inaugural. The most famous surely is uh, another very powerful, I guess, couplet. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. This, of course, is one of these things where people have been searching for its origins since the moment it was delivered. And it's been variously attributed to Oliver Wendell Holmes, who said something not entirely dissimilar, and to Warren Harding, who said something quite similar in substance, and Kennedy's prep school headmaster, who is falsely said to have said something similar, and Cahil Gabran, who may have said something similar but probably didn't. The one thing that is clear is it is a thought that Kennedy and Sorensen had been playing with rhetorically. Throughout the 1960 campaign, there are a number of speeches that come close to this, but not with nearly the same turn of phrase. And they played with it, and they polished it right up till the very end. They knew from the first that this was the heart of the speech. We were talking before about Strunk and White and precision and conciseness. However you look at the precursors from other authors of this line, there is no question but what this is the most succinct and, and I think the most powerful. Kennedy and Sorensen and the rest added to the language by subtracting from it. I think that's exactly right, Bob. I mean, you know, let me just read some of the versions of this. In Detroit, Kennedy said, this is September of 1960, the new frontier is not what I promise I'm going to do for you. The new frontier is what I ask you to do for our country. In Washington later that month, he said, we do not campaign stressing that what our country is going to do for us as a people. We stress what we can do for the country, all of us. And then finally over the winter, they came to this. And it is, I think, as you suggest, still the most enduring call to public service in our lifetime. Assuming that language is a major part of the power of this speech, and of course it is, what are we to make of this speech as an essential part of Kennedy's legacy? Does it matter that these words are almost certainly largely somebody else's? First of all, I think you need to give Kennedy credit for being willing to actively solicit and wrestle with and employ the words of people of the caliber of Stevenson and Galbraith and Nevins and Kraft and Sorensen. Now, Sorensen's the speechwriter. But remember, Stevenson was, to some extent, Kennedy's principal competitor. He was the previous nominee. It would be a little bit like Barack Obama asking Hillary Clinton for a draft and then employing nine different sentences from her draft in his speech. I don't think that's going to happen anymore. It was in that sense an act of enormous self-confidence that he could take this collaboration and make it his own. And yet he went to at least some lengths to disguise the fact that other people may have 
contributed or written large portions of this speech. Yes, there's no question that's true. One thing before we get to playing out how true that is, it was also a different time in which it was understood, at least contemporaneously, that everyone would play along. Stevenson, who was not a shy man and not without ego, so far as I can tell, in the remaining four years of his life, never told anyone that he had written nine lines of this speech. That also, I think, is very hard to imagine happening anymore. But you're absolutely right, Mike. Kennedy went to great lengths to obscure the idea that anyone else had done this. Indeed, he play-acted a scene in which he purported to write the speech himself out longhand. Oh, this is the Hugh Sidey story that uh, took place before the inauguration on Kennedy's uh, plane, the Caroline. He transcribed by hand what had been already committed to the typewritten page. How, what did he do? First of all, Hugh Sidey is the White House correspondent of Time magazine. He comes onto the airplane and into the president-elect's cabin. This is three days before the inaugural. And Kennedy sits there with a, with a blank legal pad, and he says, I'm having some trouble figuring out exactly how to write this speech. And he scribbles down a thing, and he reads a little back to Sidey and scribbles a little more and talks to him about it and taps his pencil against his front teeth, which is his favorite nervous habit when he was writing and thinking, and ultimately scribbles out three pages purporting to write this speech that, as you say, had essentially already been finished. And then remarkably, even after Sidey leaves, he writes out five more pages, presumably literally with the typescript at this point at his elbow because he's largely copying them out, and created an eight or nine page manuscript version of the inaugural address, which he then dates in his own hand, January 17, 1961. After the president is killed, Mrs. Kennedy took this to an even greater level. In the first temporary exhibit of the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library, she had this handwritten draft taken out of the file and put on public display with the caption, the first draft of the president's inaugural address in his own handwriting. Okay, so clearly it mattered to JFK that we think he wrote this speech. Clearly it mattered to Jacqueline Kennedy. Should it matter to us that we now know, after sifting through drafts and through history, that he certainly did not write much of this speech? Should it matter to me as somebody who had these words on my wall? Does it matter to you as somebody who wrote a book about him? I, I think it depends on what, what level you want to think about it. Kennedy lives on in our history, not because of, frankly, enormous accomplishment. He died at the most generous before he could accomplish a great deal but because of his ability to articulate, I think, our most profound values and highest aspirations much better than anyone has before or since. And that is his. It is not Sorensen's. It is not Galbraith's. It is not Schlesinger's. We are talking about him at great length here, 50 years after his death, and I believe we're doing that because of the power of words. And in that sense, they are his words. With a good conscience, our only sure reward, with history the final judge of our deeds, let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help 
but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. Dick, thank you so much. Dick, thank you. My pleasure. Richard Tofel is the author of Sounding the Trumpet, The Making of John F. Kennedy's Inaugural Address. Mikey, I got to tell you, that was um, kind of remarkable. You know, there's the issue of authorship for politicians when they're giving an, an address of some sort or another. And, you know, we have willing suspension of disbelief as a body politic as to the actual provenance of the words. But that Hugh Sidey story is pretty upsetting to me, not because of its particulars, but, you know, the fundamental dishonesty that it suggests. So it makes me wonder, Mike, what corners are you cutting and what fictions are you propagating in order to ensure your place in history? I wrote every single word of that Chicken Cacciatore song. (laughs) I will go to the grave with that. That's my story. (laughs) All right. But if it's all the same to you, I may just be hiring a psychic medium to give... uh, John Kenneth Galbraith a a call (laughs) to the great beyond just to see if, you know, he didn't suggest the ricotta line after all. Well, Galbraith suggested something about Pecorino Romano, and then I punched it up to ricotta salada. (laughs) If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so at SlateLexiconValley at gmail.com. That's SlateLexiconValley at gmail.com. You can listen to all our past episodes at Slate.com slash LexiconValley. Please subscribe to our feed in iTunes where you should leave a comment and a review. If you want to follow us on Twitter, at Lexicon Valley. I want to thank Richard Tofel, author of Sounding the Trumpet, and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mikey. We done here? We're done. All right. I'd, li- I'd like to say yeah, this about that. Later. Gator. Gator.